Good morning to each and every one. Our text is found in 1 Samuel chapter 4. Again, that's 1 Samuel chapter 4. And I invite you to, again to take your bulletin in there. You'll find uh, something called Sermon Notes. If you're not familiar with the bulletin, they're in there. And you'll find a title, Departed Glory. The title for today's sermon, 1 Samuel chapter 4, verses 1 through 22. Under that title, you'll see a quote from a man named Horatius Bonner. Horatius Bonner. A couple of months ago, I was trying to convince the Velasters, when they were still expecting another son, uh, to think about naming him uh, Horatius. They just uh, kindly, half-mockingly dismissed me. And came up with something much more sober-minded, Luke. But Horatius, I'm sure his parents loved him, but Horatius Bonner. Uh, he lived in the 1800s, uh, preacher, theologian, hymn writer. And in that little quote, he states the following, uh, All that a sinner needs is found in Christ. That's wonderful. This is a room full of sinners. All that we need is found in Christ. In one of his more famous hymns, he he penned the following words and tried to pay careful attention to these four stanzas. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. In other words, I can do nothing. I can do nothing to, to earn God's favor. I can do nothing to earn salvation. He goes on, thy work alone, O Christ, can ease my weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. And then he ends with these beautiful words, I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine, and with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. All that the sinner needs is found in Christ. That is where we're going to end this morning. Think in terms of a circle. That's our starting point. It's going to be our termination point. But to get there, we're going to weave through 1 Samuel chapter 4. If you've been here the past few Sundays, you'll remember there is a certain man named Elkanah, lives in the town of Ramah, two wives, his first wife Hannah, unable to conceive. On one particular visit to Shiloh, where they had gone up to worship to celebrate one of the feasts, the annual feasts of Jehovah, she prays for a son. She has the glory of God before her, the honor of God in view. And so she utters a vow that she will dedicate her son to the Lord for his service. The Lord hears her prayer, opens her womb. She conceives a son, Samuel. And as she vowed, as she committed, as she promised, once the boy is weaned, four or five years of age, she makes that journey from Ramah to Shiloh, and she hands her son over to Eli, the priest, the judge. And he grows in favor with God, and he grows in favor with man. 
The time comes, a quiet, still, warm evening, night. He hears this voice calling to him, Samuel, Samuel. And upon Eli's encouragement and exhortation, he responds, Speak, Lord, your servant hears. It was the call of a prophet. This prophet Samuel, established by the Lord, would hear the word of the Lord, declare the word of the Lord to Israel. The first message he has to deliver is horrific. It is to the old man Eli himself. Concerning Eli, concerning Eli's sons, concerning Eli's posterity, his sons have have wreaked havoc within the nation of Israel. Priests of the Lord, and yet immoral, idolatrous, disobedient. God is going to take them. Not only that, he is going to rip the priesthood from Eli's posterity. This is the first prophetic message that Samuel delivers. And now we come to chapter 4. We see him growing older. He is established in a prophet in all the land. And then the word of the Lord declares, verse 1, the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now Israel went out to battle against the Philistines. They camped at Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped at Aphek. The Philistines drew up in line against Israel, and when the battle spread, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men on the field of battle. And when the troops came to camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh, that it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. So the people sent to Shiloh and brought from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who was enthroned on the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. As soon as the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel gave a mighty shout, so that the earth resounded. And when the Philistines heard the noise of the shouting, they said, What does this great shouting in the camp of the Hebrews mean? And when they learned that the Ark of the Lord had come into the camp, The Philistines were afraid, for they said, a God has come into the camp. And they said, woe to us, for nothing like this has happened before. Woe to us, who can deliver us from the power of these mighty gods? These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with every sort of plague in the wilderness. Take courage and be men, O Philistines, lest you become slaves to the Hebrews as they have been to you. Be men and fight. So the Philistines fought. And Israel was defeated, and they fled, every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter, for there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, died. A man of Benjamin ran from the battle line and came to Shiloh the same day, with his clothes torn and with dirt on his head. When he arrived, Eli was sitting on his seat by the road, watching, for his heart trembled for the ark of God. And when the man came into the city and told the news, all the city cried out. When Eli heard the sound of the outcry, he said, what is the uproar? Then the man hurried and came and told Eli. Now Eli was 98 years old, and his eyes were set so they could not see. And the man said to Eli, I am he who has come from the battle. I fled from the battle today. And he said, how did it go, my son? He who brought the news answered and said, Israel has fled before the Philistines, and there has also been a great defeat among the people. Your two sons also, Hophni and Phinehas, are dead, and the ark of God has been captured. 
As soon as he mentioned the ark of God, Eli fell over backward from his seat by the side of the gate, and his neck was broken, and he died. For the man was old and heavy. He had judged Israel forty years. Now his daughter-in-law, the wife of Phinehas, was pregnant, about to give birth. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay any attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark of God had been captured, and because of her father-in-law and her husband. And she said, The glory has departed from Israel, for the ark of God has been captured. How are we going to approach this chapter, these verses? It's a powerful narrative, compelling. We've got battles, we have deaths, we see the ark of the, of the covenant, the ark of the Lord enter the fray. We have uh, so much transpiring packed into this relatively brief narrative, short story, how to approach it. Uh, I want to approach it like a, like a photo album um, or slide projector. How many of you remember what a slide projector is? Some of you younger ones will have to go to a museum to find out what I'm talking about. But I remember some of those missionary reports as a child as those faithful missionaries would make their way through their thousand or so slides, naming everyone they'd ever met overseas, and then ending with that beautiful sunset. Slide projectors used powerfully in my past anyway. That's how I want to present this chapter, as a slideshow, a photo album. And what we're going to view, what we're going to see are six snapshots, six photos, six slides. And I want to describe each for us and then ask a question directed to each one of us. So that's how we're going to approach it. We've heard the narrative. We've heard the reading of the Word of God. Well, how are we to comprehend it? What are we to glean from it? Move through this photo album with me, this slideshow, and look at these six pictures. Seek to understand them. And then hear the question related to each. And so slide number one, it's this. We see in this chapter a hard heart. We see a hard, a hard heart. Look at verse one. Very first statement. The word of Samuel came to all Israel. Obviously, something has happened. Go back to chapter three, the very first verse. Now the young man Samuel was ministering to the Lord under Eli, and the word of the Lord was what? Rare in those days. There was no frequent vision. One of the worst judgments that can befall a people, it is when the Lord withholds or withdraws his word. God has withdrawn his word from the nation of Israel. But by the start of chapter 4, something has changed. The word of Samuel, that is the word of the Lord, through Samuel the prophet, came to all Israel. Huge turn of events. What's transpired? You already know God has called Samuel. 
God has established Samuel as a prophet. And God is now speaking to the nation of Israel through his appointed man, his anointed servant, Samuel. But there's still a problem. What is it? Israel isn't listening. There was a day when the word of the Lord was rare. There is now a day when God is again speaking to his people, Israel, through his appointed prophet, Samuel. But there is still a problem. The people are riddled with stubbornness and hardness of heart, and they are not listening. They refuse to repent of their sin. They refuse to turn from their idolatry. They refuse to turn to serve the living and true God. And so here, what must God do? He must get their attention. Uh, to use a colloquialism, he has to hit them where it hurts. He needs to get their attention. He needs to awaken them from their slumber. He needs to break their hardened heart. How does he do that? Firstly, they suffer, they experience a terrible defeat. We see it in verse 10. 30,000 foot soldiers lay dead on the field of battle. And the Philistines, their overlords, continue to exercise their mastery over Israel. The second thing is this. Israel suffers a devastating loss. The Ark of the Covenant of the Living God is taken captive. If you can, in your mind's eye, think of the tabernacle. The instructions as given by God, later the temple, divided into two rooms. Uh, The outer room, known as the holy place. And in the holy place stood the candlestick, the table of showbread, the altar of incense. And then there was a veil hanging, separating the holy place from the most holy place. As you entered the veil, what stood there? It was the Ark of the Covenant, covered with the mercy seat. Where God, from which God spoke to the nation of Israel, upon which the glory of the Lord descended. This ark has now been taken prisoner. It has been taken into the land of the Philistines. What is God doing? A terrible defeat on the battlefield. A, a terrible loss. The ark of the covenant. He's simply doing the following. You will not listen to my prophet Samuel. You will not listen to my word as it goes forth. Well, now I am going to get your attention. I am going to break that hard heart. Now, here's the question. You've got the photo. You can see the snapshot. Here's the question. Friend, are you hard of hearing? Are you hard of hearing? By that, I'm not asking if you're suffering some loss of hearing. No. By that I mean, is your heart hardened to the point? Is your heart so cauterized that you are no longer responsive to what God is revealing and declaring in his word? You come here Sunday after Sunday. You hear the word of the Lord. You know the will of the living God. And yet your heart is stubborn. Your heart is closed. Your mind is closed to what he is saying to you. If that is the case, friend, uh, and you're a believer, very important for you, very important for me to understand this. God never leaves his people in that condition. 
God never abandons his people in that condition. If we are unresponsive, if we have hardened our hearts, if we are no longer listening, if you are a Christian, you can be sure of this. God will do something to get your attention. He will. Let me use the colloquialism I used earlier. He will hit you where it hurts. He will do so as a loving, tender, compassionate, heavenly father. But he will do it. The psalmist himself declared, Psalm 119, verse 71, It is good for me that I was afflicted. What's that? It was good for me that I was afflicted. Tells us why. That I might learn your statutes. An invaluable lesson, Christian. An invaluable invaluable truth. We see it mirrored here in the experience of the nation of Israel. God hadn't spoken for ages. He is now speaking through Samuel. The word is going out to all Israel. They aren't listening. And so God steps into time. They, They suffer a terrible defeat. They experience a terrible loss. And you will see by the end of the story, a couple chapters from now, guess what they are then doing? They are listening. They are hearing. They are obeying. They are repenting of their sin, turning from their idolatry to serve the one true living God. That's snapshot number one. Slide number two is this. We see a superstitious religion. A superstitious religion. Look at what we read in verse 3. And when the troops came to the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Just just pause and hear that question again. They've gone out. There's been initial battle. 4,000 men have fallen on the field of battle. Uh, they've withdrawn to their, to their military camp. And this is the question on their lips. This is the question they're asking collectively of one another. Why? Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Okay. Put the question in the larger context. What period are we in? The period of the judges. What has the nation of Israel been doing for close to 300 years? Turning from God. Dabbling in idolatry. Playing the spiritual harlot when it comes to that covenant into which they had entered with God at Sinai chasing after other gods, forsaking the worship of the one true living God. They suffer this military defeat. They live in an age in which every man does what is right in his own eyes. They suffer this defeat. They they group together. They, they, They reconnect back at camp. And the question they want answered is this, why? And we might very well ask ourselves, how could they be so blind? How could they be so ignorant? They can't see their own hand in front of their face. 300 years of rebellion. The Lord has defeated them. They acknowledge that. They know it was God. And yet they have no clue why. And so what do they think the answer is? Where do they think the answer is found? They come up with this brilliant idea in the middle of verse 3. Let us bring the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord here from Shiloh. It's in the tabernacle in Shiloh. We're fighting here. Let's send someone to go get it. Bring it here. Why? That it may come among us and save us from the power of our enemies. And so they go. They send word. 
Eli's sons, Hophni and Phinehas, they bring the Ark of the Covenant. And when the Ark enters the camp of Israel, everyone is excited. They work themselves up into an emotional frenzy. The box is here. The Ark of the Covenant is here. Now God will give us the victory over our enemies. The Philistines hear the shout. The Philistines hear this great uproar, this great excitement. They hear news reaches them that the Ark of the Covenant has come into the camp. They know something of the history of the nation of Israel. They know something about their God, and they are terrified. They have to begin to encourage and exhort one another to fight like men and to stand and not run. And so we have the Israelites all excited. We have the Philistines all terrified. Why? Because a box has come into the midst of the nation of Israel. You see, both the Israelites and the Philistines have a mechanistic view of God. They think God can be manipulated. They think God is confined to a box. They think that by bringing this mere box, a beautiful box, no doubt about it, overlaid with gold, the cherubim on top, I'm sure it was quite dazzling and spectacular, but they actually think that this box contains a God. And if we can only get the box here, then we will know victory over our enemies. They have a mechanistic view of God. They view God as someone They view God as something to be manipulated. Uh, This isn't Hannah's God, is it? You go go back to chapter 2 just for a moment. Uh, This isn't Hannah's God. You recall what Hannah celebrates and what Hannah sings about at the outset of chapter 2, verse 2. There is none holy like the Lord. We sang that just a few moments ago. Incomparable holiness. There is none besides the Lord, unmatched greatness. There is no rock like our God, unrivaled power. Down into verse 3, the latter half of the verse. The Lord is a God of knowledge, unsearchable knowledge, unfathomable knowledge. And by him actions are weighed, unquestionable justice. That's Hannah's God. That's the God of Scripture. That isn't Israel's God. They have fallen into silly superstition, whereby they actually believe their hope rests in a box. And if this box is brought, only brought among them, that this will somehow secure their victory over their enemies. Now, the question for us is as follows. Are you superstitious? Are you superstitious? Now, this requires some clarification because when we hear the word superstition, uh, it conjures up certain ideas. Uh, I've seen a lot of superstition in my life. Uh, Fifteen years or so ago, Allison and I used to lunch once a month in the home of an elderly sister uh, in Lisbon, Portugal. She would have us over for a meal, and she was saved later in life. God wondrously and miraculously, powerfully saved that, saved that woman. And over one particular lunch, she was sharing uh, her testimony with us and talking about her idolatry and talking about this little image she had, probably about the height of this mic here, of uh, Nossa Senhora, Our Lady, the Virgin Mother, made of beautiful white marble, Portugal, Roman Catholic bastion, and how this was the most precious article, the most precious thing she had ever owned, and on one particular night, she entered into an evangelical church not far from where she lived, heard the gospel, saved by God's grace. 
and conviction set in as to this little image she had at home set on the mantel place in her little living room. And so she gently took that image, wrapped it in a cloth, put it in a wooden box, and placed it under her bed. And there it sat for three years. And every so often, she would have this gnawing feeling of discomfort. I know what's up there under the bed. And on one particular night, as she heard the preaching of God's word, the Spirit of God came upon her, and she was convicted of her idolatry. She was convicted of her superstition. At the conclusion of the meeting, she went straight to her room, straight to that bed, pulled out that box, which she hadn't opened for three years, put that image on her bed, picked up a hammer, and had at it. It was time for the superstition to end. Even as a believer, she still had this gnawing anxiety when it came to this image, thinking there was something powerful about it, thinking thinking that there was something supernatural about it, and it had such a hold on her. And the day came when she had to break free by the power of God's Spirit from that hold. That's the sort of thing we usually think of when we toss that word superstition around. But friend, the question is this, are you superstitious? Superstition is evident in two things. The first is this, we are superstitious when we have a humanistic view of God. When we have a humanistic view of God. In other words, we turn God into us. We make God like ourselves. David Wells laments that this is the great problem facing the church today. He says it is God, majestic and holy in his being, who has disappeared from the modern evangelical world. His point is this. Evangelicalism today is not about God. It is about me. It is not about a majestic, glorious, thrice holy God. It is not about a God who reigns in majesty, who is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. It is not about humble subjection to him. It is not about reverence toward him. It is not about fearing him. It is not about worshiping, serving, obeying him. It is about me. What does the church do for me? What does worship do for me? What does the pastor do for me? What does this church do for me? And what is true of what Luther said to Erasmus 400 years ago, is as true today. Your thoughts of God, Luther said to Erasmus, your thoughts of God are too small. Too small. When our thoughts of God are too small, guess what, friends? We are superstitious because we have adopted a humanistic view of God. Superstition, secondly, is also evident, obvious, When we adopt, I've already used this expression, a mechanistic, mechanical view of God. We actually believe God is something, someone who is manipulated, influenced by what we do. And let me break this down and bring it right home. Unless my heart, unless your heart is right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, our religious observance is superstition. In other words, if my heart right now is not right with God through the Lord Jesus Christ, if your heart right now at this moment is not right with God through his Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, your presence here is superstitious. 
Your reading of the Bible is superstitious. Your prayer is superstitious. Your giving is superstitious. All of your religious observance is merely superstitious. Why? Because if the heart isn't in it, and if we don't worship out of, out of a sense of appreciation of the worth of Almighty God, if we are estranged from God, as was the case with the nation of Israel, then all of our observance getting excited, bringing the ark in, is merely superstition. Our vain attempt to manipulate God, a mechanistic view of God. And so the question, friend, are you superstitious? As you look at Israel, what religion, what had, it had degraded to, what it had become, in essence, a superstitious religion. Snapshot number three, verses 10 through 18, a bitter providence. And so Israel brings the ark into the camp. And having already suffered a resounding defeat, 4,000 fallen, Off they go into battle again with the Philistines. And what's the outcome? Verse 10. So the Philistines fought. And Israel, the ark's there. It makes no difference. Israel was defeated. It's worse this time. They fled. Every man to his home. And there was a very great slaughter. For there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. And the ark of God was captured. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, Died. Here we see a bitter providence. Uh, nothing good going on here from our human vantage point. Uh, you, have a, you have a nation uh, fighting against their enemies. You have them suffering two military defeats. You have two of their most prominent leaders, the sons of Eli, killed. You have your army on the run scattering each one to his home as quickly as he can. And you have the ark of the covenant of the Lord captured. Nothing good going on here. That's the human vantage point. From God's vantage point, what's transpiring? From God's perspective, what's happening through Israel's military defeat and the loss of the ark? Simply this, God is working in his people. He is working in his people for the glory and honor of his name. Firstly, he is punishing them for their sin. For the honor of his name. Secondly, he's correcting them of their superstition for the honor of his name. Thirdly, he's bringing them to repentance for the honor of his name. And fourthly, he is preparing them to receive his word for the honor of his name. And so what appears to be an abysmal failure, what appears to be irreparable damage, what appears to be an irreplaceable loss is actually a bitter providence orchestrated by God for the good of his own people. He is bringing them to a point where what? Back to the very first verse. They will listen to his word as it has gone forth through his prophet Samuel. But he must bring them to that point. He must break their hard hearts. He's going to break them through these bitter experiences and what appear to be terrible defeats and terrible losses, what can only be described as bitter providence. And yet in his marvelous authority, according to his wondrous wondrous sovereignty, He is actually working this bitter providence for the good of his people. Isaiah records it wonderfully. Isaiah 37, verse 26, the words of the Lord. Have you not heard that I determined it long ago? I planned from days of old 
what now I bring to pass. Here's the question for us, friend. Are you deceived? When you consider this snapshot of a bitter providence, the question is this. Are you deceived by appearances? Are you deceived by appearances? And so we look at the world in which we live. We see violence, wars and rumors of wars. Uh, We look at the country in which we live, the society in which we live, and the economic chaos and the political chaos, which doesn't lag too far behind. We see moral decay. We see that in our day, nothing has changed that much from the days of the judges. Everyone does whatever is right in his own eyes. Personally, we, we, we experience hardships. We suffer affliction. We go through what, can, what we can only describe, what we can only describe as bitter providences. Friend, Christian, the truth is this, that we must never let go of appearances can be deceiving. Uh, Joel Beakey explained it this way in a book years ago. He, he, he talks about the internal workings of a watch or a clock. You open up an old watch or you open up an old clock, and what do you see? A number, of, a number of rings, loops, working in different directions. Some are going clockwise, some are going counterclockwise. And as you just sort of glance and stare at the inner workings of a watch or a clock, it all seems to be haphazard. It doesn't make any sense at all. Some of these wheels seem to be going against each other and actually working against each other. And how like that life is. That we go through bitter provinces, we experience bitter affliction, And yet we have this wonderful truth to hold on to that appearances can be deceiving. That even in the midst of bitter providence, God has declared beforehand what he brings to pass. And even through bitter providence, he is accomplishing his good plans and purposes for us. Even through bitter providence, he cures us of our sin. He brings us to that place of repentance. And he warms and turns our hearts to him. Again, an invaluable truth from that third glimpse, a bitter providence. The fourth snapshot is this, a departed glory. And that takes us into verses 19 through 22. A sad, extremely sad portion of this text. We, it begins, the author begins to focus in on a character who he hasn't been mentioned at this point. Uh, the wife of Phinehas, the daughter-in-law of Eli. And so the battle has been lost. A man, he's identified in verse 12 as a man of Benjamin. Some Hebrew scholars, some Jewish scholars think, that, think that's Saul. A man of the tribe of Benjamin. Why mention the fact that he's a Benjamite? A few chapters from now, who are we going to read of Saul? Some surmise that that's, that's probably Saul. We don't know that for sure. But this man runs from the battle. He comes to Shiloh. He announces what has happened. The, 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 the city is in such turmoil as they hear of this great defeat Eli, when he hears that the ark of God has been captured, falls over, he breaks his neck, and now his daughter-in-law, who is expecting, who is pregnant, pregnant, the wife of Phinehas, word comes to her, she's about to give birth, verse 19. And when she heard the news that the ark of God was captured, and that her father-in-law and her husband were dead, she bowed and gave birth, for her pains came upon her. And about the time of her death, the woman attending her said to her, Do not be afraid, for you have borne a son. But she did not answer or pay attention. And she named the child Ichabod, saying, The glory has departed from Israel, because the ark had been 
captured. That's the name of her son. Uh, No doubt she's overwhelmed by the military defeat, the news of that defeat at the hands of the Philistines. Uh, No doubt she is upset by the death of her father-in-law. No question she's upset upon hearing the the news of the death of her husband. Uh, She's about to give birth, birth, gives birth. She knows she's dying. She names her son. She has the foresight to name her son Ichabod, symbolizing what? Meaning what? That the glory of God has departed from Israel as symbolized in the departure and the captive and the capture of the Ark of the Covenant of God. Ichabod is symbolic. That the nation of Israel, God has brought them to such a point, And through this defeat and through the capture of the Ark, He is showing them what has already transpired in their midst without them realizing it. The glory of God had long since departed. God was already gone from the midst of the nation of Israel, evident in the fact that they would not heed God's word through the prophet Samuel. And so God now orchestrates this defeat, the loss of the ark, to make it clear to the nation of Israel that God, is no longer in their midst. That as a people, they can only be described as Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. The question is this, based on that photo. Does that frighten you? Does that frighten you? What do I mean by that? I simply mean this. Let me, let me put it in the context of history and a, and a, and a series of questions. What happened to the church at Jerusalem? Go back and read the book of Acts. All the apostles gathered there. Whatever happened to that church? What happened to the church at Antioch? Sent out Paul and Barnabas on those three great missionary endeavors and journeys. Where did it go? Whatever happened to the seven churches of Asia Minor to whom Paul wrote and later John wrote in in the Revelation? Where did those churches go? Whatever happened to those churches where men, theologians, such as Athanasius and Augustine, once preached and taught and wrote? What happened to them? Fast forward, the Reformation, Germany. Whatever happened to the church where Martin Luther preached? Whatever happened to all those great Reformation churches across Germany and Switzerland and Holland? Whatever happened to the church where John Calvin preached? Or in Scotland, the church where John Knox preached? Or in Northampton, Massachusetts, the church where Jonathan Edwards preached. Not just churches, seminaries. Whatever happened to Princeton Seminary? Where only a hundred years ago, giants like B.B. Warfield once walked. And what is happening to countless churches and organizations and and missions and, and institutions and seminaries and colleges in our own day? It is simply this. As you enter these places, you notice written over the door, the entranceway, Ichabod. The glory of the Lord has departed from Israel. Does that frighten you? Terrifies me. Why? Could it ever happen to GCC? In a heartbeat. In a heartbeat. The glory of the Lord departing from the midst of his people because they come to such a point where they are hardened in their obstinacy, no longer attentive to the word of God, and fall into mere religious observance that can only be described as superstition. That terrifies me. 
The nation of Israel teaches us that, the danger of Ichabod, the departure of the glory of the Lord. Jeremiah, the prophet, he refers to this event in order to, in order to get the attention of Israel in his own day. He says the following in Jeremiah 7, Go now to my place that was in Shiloh. This is the Lord speaking to Israel in Jeremiah's day. Go now to my place that was in Shiloh, where I made my name dwell at first, and see what I did to it because of the evil of my people, Israel. A frightening lesson, and yet an important lesson, the danger of a departed glory. The fifth snapshot, a wonderful God. You'll notice no reference because it's the entire chapter. As we read this narrative, we see something of the glory of our God. We see his wisdom in executing his plan. We see his authority in controlling every detail. We see his faithfulness in keeping his promises. We see his justice in punishing Israel. We see his love in calling to them through Samuel's ministry. We behold a great and glorious God. And the question for us is this. Do you know, friend, do you know this great God? Do you know something of his authority and sovereignty and majesty and power? And do you fear him? Do you know something of his knowledge and his wisdom and his faithfulness? And do you trust him? Do you know something of his goodness, his compassion, his loving kindness? And do you love him? Do you know God? And the sixth snapshot is this, a great deliverer. What is it Israel needs? Israel needs a deliverer. But before God will deliver Israel, what must he do? He must break Israel. He must get Israel's attention. That's the goal of the defeat and of the loss of the ark. And through those losses, through that defeat, he breaks their hard hearts to the point where they become receptive to his word and what he is preaching and declaring through his prophet Samuel. And it all points to their need for a deliverer. And by extension and application, friend, it points to our need for a deliverer. Because guess what? Nothing has changed from the days of Samuel. We are the same men and women that the Israelites and the Philistines were. We suffer the same condition. We're riddled with the same sin. And we have the same all-encompassing need, the need for A deliverer, the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who delivers us from death because he is our life. He delivers us from judgment because he is our righteousness. He delivers us from wrath because he is our peace. He delivers us from darkness because he is our light. He delivers us from ignorance because he is our wisdom. He delivers us from weakness because he is our strength. And he delivers us from despair because he is our hope. And that, friend, completes the circle. Brings us all the way back to those words of Horatius Bonar centuries ago. All that a sinner needs is found in Christ, who is our great deliverer. The question is this. Have you repented of your sin? And have you believed in the Lord Jesus Christ?
Again, the words of that hymn, and with this I will conclude. Not what these hands have done can save this guilty soul. Not what this toiling flesh has borne can make my spirit whole. Thy work alone, O Christ, can ease this weight of sin. Thy blood alone, O Lamb of God, can give me peace within. Thy grace alone, O God, to me can pardon speak. Thy power alone, O Son of God, can this sore bondage break. I bless the Christ of God. I rest on love divine. And with unfaltering lip and heart, I call this Savior mine. Our Lord God, it is you who has made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. O great and mighty God, whose name is the Lord of hosts, great in counsel and mighty indeed, whose eyes are open to all the ways of man, rewarding each according to his ways and according to the fruit of his deeds, come now, we pray, and press upon us the glories of your Son, the Lord Jesus. Kindle our love for him and our devotion to him. Draw our affections away from the entanglements of this world and fix them firmly on your Son. This we pray for the honor of your great name and the advancement of your glorious kingdom. In Christ's name we do ask it. Amen.